Thank you. We are reading today from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then just one verse from Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, I had the privilege of visiting Bethlehem last year, just for a very short visit. Uh, it was about six miles away from Jerusalem, and you have to cross into a different political territory with a different currency, and quite honestly, quite a tangible different feel in that place. Into the West Bank. Thousands of visitors packed the small streets and even the hills surrounding the town where the angels, um, we read, appeared to the shepherds. But there was nothing particularly attractive about Bethlehem as a town. It didn't look like the cutesy scenes on the Christmas cards. There wasn't much going for it other than this association with the birth of Jesus. The place where heaven touched earth, quite literally, over 700 years before. Micah, writing about Bethlehem over 700 years before this happened, comments on its low status. In the verse we just read, it tells us it wasn't even worthy of mention among the territories of Judah when the land was divided in the days of Joshua. And you can read about that in Judges 6. Bethlehem was overlooked. It was left out. It was insignificant in the sight of men. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That, ad, that added bit's a bit tricky to say, but it's added on to distinguish it from the other Bethlehem, which was associated with the tribe of Zebulun. Not the kind of place you think any great leader or ruler or king would choose. And yet we know that's exactly what happened. God chose Bethlehem. And there are, in fact, many Old Testament scriptures that point to that years before, before Jesus was born. And as Micah points us towards this event, he also refers us back to before the beginning of time as we know it, to Jesus' eternal existence with the Father. And sometimes when we think about the prophets, we picture this kind of gazing into the future. Useful if you're interested in prediction and that kind of thing. 
But whilst God often did reveal to them something of what would happen in the future, true prophets are very much immersed in the present, seeing with the help of God what is going on in the present truly, but maybe not obviously to everyone around them. I think it's a bit like looking at a, at a range of mountains. Now, not too far from where I live on a clear day, you can see the morns because we're a bit high up. And from where you stand, it just looks like one continuous heap of mountain rock. And yet, there are three or four at least distinct and distinctive separate peaks that you can only see the closer you get to them. I think prophetic vision's a bit like that. Some prophetic events are near, some are distant in future. But we can learn one clear thing from the biblical prophets. Their insights are meant to empower in us a present focus on God. The passage we just read from Isaiah was written over two and a half thousand years ago. What is there in the range of Isaiah's vision for us today? I have to go a little bit further back to chapter 10 which is where he begins to draw pictures with words. And the words he chooses are all about the imagery of trees. He gives an account of the Assyrian invasion of Jerusalem and the geographical and the spiritual decimation of the land. And he says that in the aftermath, it's like looking at a forest that's been chopped down. He goes on to describe, in particular, two trees, one symbolizing Assyria, which is cut down with finality and the other symbolizing Judah, which has a different outcome. Isaiah is looking at a stumpy landscape. Now, I don't know if you can imagine this, but if you're heading up one Saturday afternoon, Beaver Forest, and to your surprise and horror when you get there, a gigantic felling operation has happened. Every tree is now a stump. Not a single tree is left. How would you feel? Shocked? angry, confused. You see, whatever you feel, it won't change the landscape. It's not bringing back the trees, it's gone. But as you walk amongst that devastation, you notice out of one of the stumps, a small sprouting of something green. There's a shoot coming up. One stump has roots that are still alive under the earth and are pushing up and making a new branch. And that now has your attention. For some moments now, you're no longer looking at the wreckage around you because you see the fresh shoot. And so Isaiah's vision is charged with hope in the middle of the stumps because Isaiah saw. He thoroughly knew what was wrong in his world. In previous chapters, he describes the devastation of human sin and suffering and the brutality of an oppressive Assyrian invasion. But he was not reduced to the emptiness and the wasteland that he saw around him. He wasn't stuck there. He saw a shoot. He saw what God was already presently doing and would bring to completion at some stage. Something new was happening. A shoot from the stump of Jesse. And what kind of tree had that been anyway? The stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11 is a picture of the royal line of David, of whom Jesse was the father like a mighty tree that had first been reduced to a stump in 586 BC when Babylon defeated Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. It marked an end to the rule of kings from the line of David in Israel. 
But God had said several times that through that very line would come forth a ruler, another king, the one Micah also spoke about and the one Isaiah talks about in chapter 11. A shoot which would grow, blossom and develop because the spirit of the Lord would rest on him. That shoot that had been hidden in the stump would eventually become visible everywhere. And that shoot is a person anointed by God to rescue us. Isaiah is, of course, talking about Jesus. And in verses 1 to 5, his prophetic vision ranges over the beauty of the person of Jesus, describing him, the shoot, the son of David, and the way in which he rules his kingdom. This is another way of governing. I'm going to come back to those verses in a moment because they're really what I want to focus on. But look at how society ruled by Jesus is different. I love that in verse 4 we see God's heart for those considered low in society. Jesus is not influenced by those with earthly power and money and prominence. He's not influenced by appearance. He is reliable in his judgments about people. John 2.24 later on tells us that he knew what was under the surface. He looked into people's hearts. Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit with godly wisdom and understanding, with the ability to counsel and to do powerful acts. This is way beyond the norm of mere human governance. And there's also reference to the yet future time. When according to 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, with the mere breath of his lips, Jesus will destroy every final trace of evil. Isaiah is seeing as we see the mountains describing here both the first and the second comings with no time lapse. We then find description of the peace and the safety of that extended kingdom of God where hostility will cease and where the knowledge of God will fill the whole earth. I can't begin to understand how that is going to happen. But this is no surface thing. This isn't something covering a wasteland with a veneer of niceness. But this is deep transformation, even within the nature and the animal kingdom. Verses 68, there's a reversal, a restoring, a putting right of that which has gone wrong. And like the saying of those distant mountains, it's not yet up close. It's realized only in part until the reign of Jesus is fully established. But we can see something of it now. Do you see what Isaiah saw? Can you see the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord rests? Jesus had the special anointing of the Holy Spirit remaining with him. But he also had something else that set him apart. Let's listen to verses 2 and 3 again. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. There are several attributes listed here describing the person of Jesus. But there's only one that's mentioned twice. And in Scripture, when something is repeated like this, we take notice. The fear of the Lord. This is something that Jesus is known for, that he delights in. If this is the mark of Jesus, then what is our mark? What is this fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is not the same as being afraid off the Lord. Rather, it's a fear that pulls us out of being preoccupied with ourselves, with our feelings, our circumstances. It brings us into a realm of wonder and worship. 
the translation of the original Aramaic is the reverence of the Lord. It's a deep respect for and admiration of. You see, the God who showed himself in history through Jesus is the God who creates such beauty in the world that at times we stand speechless. He's the God who carries us in our crisis moments so that we don't fall apart. And he's the God who would rather die on the cross than live without us. It's for our sake that he has given us the ability to fear and to acknowledge him so that we can remember our place in the order of things, that we can revere him. But simply put, he is God and we are not. The fear of the Lord goes with the love of God. We hold the two things together. He's a God of mercy, grace and love. But when we know him, there's also this kind of holy fear of hurting the one we love the most. Through his love, we have his acceptance. But through the fear of the Lord operating in our lives, we can know his favor. And there's so many verses, over 300, that talk about the fear of the Lord in the Bible. Not just in the Old Testament, for those of you who might think this is no longer relevant Here's a few just to give you an example. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, Paul says we should aim for holiness out of reverence, out of the fear of the Lord. 1 Peter 1 verse 17, love the brotherhood of believers, fear the Lord. Jesus in Matthew 10, 28, and even the angels in Revelation 14 say we are to fear the Lord and give him glory. And there are several other verses too, all addressing those who already know him, those who have already been made right. This is to the church. The fear of the Lord brings great blessing in our lives. We're told in Psalms alone, here's some of the things that happen when we have it. It unfurls his banner against the enemy. It attracts the gaze of God on those who have it. He provides for and encamps around those who understand it. And he takes great delight in those who own it. Who wouldn't want those things? How do we know we have the fear of the Lord in our lives? I think it means simply that we grow to hate sin, the wrong things that by nature we are or that we want to do. It just popped out earlier to, to use the, the toilets. And when I went in, there was a wee bit of a whiff. And um, as you get when it's used by lots of people, this is not a particularly lovely picture with words, but I'm just going to paint it anyway. And I was thinking, you know, it would be so silly if I came back in here and said to Reuben or David or somebody up front, could you just pray for me because I'm so strongly attracted to be in those toilets, the smell of it, the look of it. It's amazing. I just want to go back there. We wouldn't do that. And yet sometimes that's what we do with the sin that we have. Will you pray for me because I don't want to do this? We need prayer, but sometimes we need to hate the sin as much as that, if not more so. We need to ask God to show us his heart towards it, what it really is, because actually it contends with who we were made to be. I pray for the fear of the Lord to be in my life most days, sometimes several times a day. And I don't always feel any different when I pray that, but I know if I really want it and I keep on asking, then by faith, I will receive it. And I know I recognize it by a new reaction to sin. C.S. Lewis said, it's when we notice the dirt that God is most present in us. It's a new awareness. It's a bent of life towards not grieving the Holy Spirit. 
you know, we had a visiting speaker in church last May or June. I can't remember which. It was coming up to the Just One event. And we had Gareth from Orangefield. And it marks it for me because, not particularly because we had a visiting speaker, but just that Sunday we sang a song that we haven't sung for a long time, but we used to sing a lot. And it's called Refiner's Fire. And it talks about the holiness of God and choosing to be holy and wanting to be holy. And as we sang that song, I was moved to tears. And, you know, that was okay in the 10 o'clock service. By the time I got to 11.30, I was thinking, well, I know what's coming. I, you know, I'm not going to be too nostalgic, but it's a song that speaks to me of an era of years ago when I was um, in, in YWAM, and it was a particular time in, in my life. But I am not usually moved to tears just by mere nostalgia. It's not really who I am. Chris will tell you that. 11.30 service, same thing again, even more so. And I knew actually the Holy Spirit was doing something in my heart. He was tenderizing something in me. And I actually had to slip out and ask him about it. And this is what I felt he said to me. It wasn't about being in YWAM. It wasn't about a time long ago. But it was a song that we sang a lot in the days of John Wimber when he went around the UK in the early 90s. And there was a thing called the Holiness Conference. And there were many, many signs and wonders done at that conference, but it was focused on holiness. And this is what I felt the Holy Spirit dropped into my spirit. I don't think there would be very many people queuing today to book into a holiness conference. It's not attractive enough. And it broke something in my heart. In our right enjoyment of the mercy and the grace of God, could it be that we've also forgotten something? You see, holiness isn't bland. It's the most attractive godly attribute. We only have to look at Jesus. And I would even go as far as to say, if we're not seeking the fire of holiness, then maybe we're in a different movement than the one Jesus began, because it's his very mark of distinction. He gives us the Holy Spirit. What happens when we don't have it to any great extent? We relativize sin. It's not that big a deal. It's our culture, sure. Everyone's doing that. But you know, the first time something's mentioned in Scripture is always significant. It's called the law of first reference. And the first mention of the fear of the Lord in the Bible is when a local king attempts to seduce Sarah in the book of Genesis. And it's said there's no fear of the Lord in this place, immorality. Without the fear of the Lord, we become too important. It's all about us, our wants, our needs, our reputation. And Jesus is relegated to something lesser. Without the fear of the Lord, we've nothing much to frame our lives. The fear of the Lord was Jesus' distinctive and a major theme throughout Scripture. Especially when God's people were entering and possessing a land, it was all about the fear of the Lord. And in our current times, it might be good to remember that in Exodus 1.17, when the order went out to kill all the baby boys, there were two midwives who feared the Lord, and Moses was saved. The Exodus began with two local women who had the fear of the Lord. Without the fear of the Lord, we change how we see evangelism. With it, we get that God is holy and righteous. And just by being born human, we are not. Every human being is born with a great gap between us and God. When you have the fear of the Lord and you understand his justice, you won't just want people to have a good time. We're absolutely called to social action. The Bible has a lot to say about that. We really, really are. 
However, we're not the only ones with compassion programs. The world has a lot of those too. But we are the only ones with God-given authority to see people restored to relationship with God. And if we're no longer about that, then we're simply bringing people into a nicer life or a slightly improved situation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The early church walked in the fear of the Lord, Acts 9, 31. Living in this and in the power of the Holy Spirit, they increased in numbers and saw many miracles happen. Without the fear of the Lord, we live too much to please other people. When we fear him, we won't be so tempted to pander to people. Sometimes we need to be able to choose to disappoint people rather than disappoint him. Jesus willingly submitted himself with a sense of respect and honor to his father. He finds his delight, his joy, and his peace in living before the father with a sense of reverence and awe. And just in closing, Isaiah 11 verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A couple of summers ago, um, I was on my way to home base to buy something. It's not too far from where I live, so I was just walking. And I happened to fall into step with a woman who was going the same direction. We began to chat. And um, it was just in the aftermath of one of the awful terrorist attacks in London. And she was talking about that, and she was expressing such fear. Rightly so. Um, but, you know, all of a sudden she said to me, I don't know where it's all going to end. And with no intent, I hadn't left the house with any intent, you know, to speak to people, particularly about Jesus. But when she said that, I said, well, you know, I do. And the Bible says it's going to end with the whole of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And I thought, what did I say that for? And she looked back at me and she just said, do you think so? And I said, yes, I really, really do think so. That's what I believe. I didn't speak to her anymore, but I knew that something had changed. She walked away with something of the truth of God in her. This is the prophetic long view, but we can see something of it in our present day if we're marked like Jesus by the fear of the Lord. What landscape are you standing in today? What surrounds you? What has been cut down in your life? It might be health or relationships or employment or I don't know. The Bible says we don't have to be stuck there. We, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw a solution. He saw Jesus. Can you see him today? If you can, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't ignore it. And if you can see the beauty of Jesus, but you've never turned towards him and asked him to help you do that today, because today could be about believing in God, finding faith, being reconnected, seeing he's real, living life here and now with a purpose, but also into the future. And we all need someone who can repair our broken relationship with a holy God of love. We all each one of us needs a saviour. The good news is there was exchange at the cross. My sinful state and yours exchanged for his sinless state. You just have to accept it from him.